0: is that some of you went to the Weber State football game last night. How many went to that? Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Then you came home and I said, so how would it go? He said, oh, it was great. We loved it. We knew we loved it. But, uh, so I said, I mean, did, did Weber State win? Said, no. no. I thought it was like a really good game or something like that. And um, But I guess not. Um, I guess you just go to those games for the same reason that University of Utah people go to BYU games. <laughs> 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 that's a of um, no, that's good. My son is on a uh, intramural soccer uh, team down at college, Derek. And uh, he did it one year at, at Fairhaven and got to play as he says, got the right advantage at the team there. Says he's, it's his first uh, foray into soccer It's a little bit unfamiliar, but I, I'm thrilled that he's getting into it. I love it. Uh, but he was telling me about the first game. He said, uh, "Man, it went, I said, how'd it go And you? Yeah, it went really well. And um, I said, so uh, did you get to play? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What positions did you play? He told me, he said, oh yeah, yeah. Here's how we used to set up when I was in high school and so on. We talked for a while and i that's good. And, you know, he's, he's at college, he's playing soccer, they're winning. I said, "So what was the score?" He says, oh, "One 0 nothing." I said, "And you guys won?" No. You <laughs> <laughs> set me up. I mean, I, I thought I, anyway, but uh, I guess they were expected to lose about eight to zero. So <laughs> losing one to zero is still, you know, a victory of sorts. <laughs> so much, much is given, I suppose. Jeremiah chapter thirty-five. Uh, we're going to be in, in Jeremiah during the various uh, times that pastors away that I'm going to be uh, preaching or teaching. And um, I really have enjoyed uh, the time over the last year or so in Jeremiah. And the year before that, I was mostly in Ezekiel. And I tend to do really slow, deliberate reads. Um, I find I don't, like I, when I sit in a meeting room, there are people that are just much faster on the uptake than I am when, when somebody talks about things, they just absorb the material really readily. And I, it just takes me a while to go over it over it to where it, I have some place to fit it to where I feel like I can actually use it, not just have a gross familiarity with it, but uh, to be able to use it in, in my life or in talking to others and know what the applications are, set it in its time and cultural context, uh, where it happened on a map and all the various contexts that the Word of God uh, has. So uh, as you know, Pastor Malick is out of town. Do pray for him um, as as he's gone, his wife as well. Uh, they've got uh, uh, family responsibilities to take care of, and um, you know our missionaries have done the same sort of thing to raise and others. Uh, it's important that they do that. And uh, so I appreciate those men who've been filling in, uh, uh, Melvin with the opening this morning, and others that are uh, taking responsibilities for Pastor. Uh, it's important that we do that. We lift him up, support him, um, defend him when he's defending, okay, and uh, come to his aid when when the time is is appropriate. Jeremiah chapter thirty-five. I want to uh, preach this morning a message out of Jeremiah thirty-five: the obedience of the Rechabites, the the obedience of the Rechabites. In, in Jeremiah chapter thirty-five, verse one to nineteen. Let's go ahead and stand as we read, and we'll read uh, from verse one to verse nineteen. The Bible says, the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go into the house of the Rechabites and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Hab- Habazinia, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, And I brought them into the house of the Lord in the chamber of the sons of Hannah, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups. And I said unto them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons, forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jodeb, the son of Rech of our father, and all that he charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, came up from the land, that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rachel, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine or for For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have heard not hearken not unto me. I have sent also unto you all my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now every man from this evil way, and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell in the land which I have given you, and your fathers, that ye have not inclined your ear nor hearkened unto me. Because the sons of Joandab, the son of Jacob, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, for this people hath not hearkened unto me. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah, and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the evil that I have pronounced against them. Because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard. And I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. Let's have one prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for again your work. And thank you for the example that you've given us in this uh, nomadic family, the Rechabites. Lord, for this family that was not of Israel, they weren't under the Mosaic Covenant, and yet they they obeyed the voice of their father. Lord, we pray that you would give us soft hearts, that you would... uh, Help us to be pliable in your hands, that when you command and order our lives, that we would not respond by uh, stiffening up or justifying, or, or by refusing to answer the phone when you call. Lord, I pray that we would uh, rather hear the voice of the Lord, we would answer, and Lord, that we would uh, bend, we would, we would give you what you want, for we know that only then will we, we be true worshipers, not just hearers of the word, but doers. God, I pray that you would uh, bless us this morning and bless the word God in our ears. We'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see it. So we see here that disobedient Judah and Jerusalem had provoked the Lord. Uh, God had uh, created a, a covenant with them, and the covenant was individuals were to keep the covenant, but the the nation was judged on their general keeping of the covenant. The covenant, the uh, Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law, as we say it, was never about personal salvation, okay? It was always to suppress, the Bible says because of the abundance of the transgressions in the New Testament. That's why it was given, to suppress the evil that would otherwise prevail in the land of Israel, the land of Judah. And these, uh, these people knew what the law of God was. They had copies of the law of God. They had uh, Later on, they would have their synagogues after the Babylonian uh, exile, but they had their prophets, they had their priests that would teach and give the sense of the law. And, but when they heard it, they ignored it. God would call, and they would do essentially what a lot of people do these days. They would ghost you. And uh, God would would speak to them, they would answer. They would not answer. They would pretend like they didn't hear. And so disobedient Judah had provoked the Lord. Like in our day, the cultural pressure had got to the point where it had crossed that middle line, like we mentioned in Sunday school. And now the cultural pressure, like that, that in peer pressure that we have in a smaller group, uh, cultural pressure is more powerful, it's more prevalent. There's fewer places to escape it. It tends to be more uh, homogenous across the, the, the nation, wherever you go. Uh, today, because of the internet, and because of satellite, cable television, and other things, we live in really a model culture, where you really can't go into farm country to get away from all of the insanity that you see in the cities. It's pervaded through uh, digital technology so that everyone's consuming the same uh, foolish notions. And you can go into the mountains in Montana and find people that are espousing the nonsense of the people in San Francisco and so on. And so the cultural influence, like in the United States, uh, came to be to where the pressure was to do evil. God raised up Jeremiah and other prophets and sent them. The Bible he, he said he, uh, they would rise up early and he would send them to them. And they preached for 20, 25 years in some cases for Judah to repent. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, uh, Joel, Obadiah, Ezekiel, all of these during this period of time also went unto the nation of Judah and Israel and warned them of the coming judgment. Rather than hearkening to the voice of the Lord, the Bible illustrates that Jerusalem had become wearied rather than warned by the constant peal of the prophets of God. In Jeremiah chapter seven verse thirteen, the Bible says, And now because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. In in verse twenty-five of the same chapter, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. In Jeremiah 26, verse 5, the Bible says, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send unto you, both rising up early and sending them, that ye have not hearkened. Jeremiah 29, verse 19, because they have not hearkened unto my word, saith the Lord, which I sent unto them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, that ye would not hear, saith the Lord. In Jeremiah 32, verse 33, it says, and they have turned unto me the back, and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. In Jeremiah 35, verse 15, the Bible says again, I have sent also unto you all my servants of the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now every man from his evil way, and amend your goings, and not not after the other gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell in the land which I have given to you, your fathers, But ye have not inclined your ear nor hearkened unto me. So God says over and over and over, he repeats this theme, I've sent the prophets, rising up early. I've called men into the ministry so that they can warn you. And the hazard is always there for people that are churched people, that we get into the rut of hearing the same thing. And, and you know, one, once in a while a pastor brings in guest pastors, and, and, and sometimes it's, it's funny, he's commented over the years, How sometimes a a guest preacher or an evangelist will preach a message similar to what he's preached in the last two months. And the aisles will just be full of people. And he just scratches his head and and thinks, you know, how come they don't hear it when I preach it? But we do. We we callous ourselves. We get accustomed to hearing the same voice. Making the same appeal in the same way. And rather than uh, hearkening to it, we harden to it. And we have to be careful that uh, if, if we've sat in church and not been moved for year after year after year, especially if we're not sure of our own salvation, if we have a question of what will happen to our soul after we die, there's a great danger in coming to be comfortable under the sound of the gospel if you've not hearkened them to it. You know, the Bible teaches that God is long-suffering, not only that any should perish, but that all should come repentance. But the appeal won't go on forever. Everyone comes to the point, even before they die, everyone comes to the point where they feel comfortable now. They know all the contents of the gospel. They, they, they have it on their calendar. Someday they're going to do that. Someday they're going to get around to that. Almost like they're going to lose those extra pounds, right? It'll go on next January 1st calendar. I'll write it in the next year's schedule, and it never comes. Mm-hmm. We have to be careful that we don't become calloused to the Word of God. It's so easy to happen. We, we don't understand that how much of a handicap our flesh is. It's one of those things that even if you do study about it, even if you do read about it, even if you do listen to sermons about it, even if you read whole books on the topic, you still cannot appreciate how much our flesh, especially our flesh working with group psychology, causes us to drift in a direction that is predictably pagan. We drift away from God, it's our tendency to do that. It's our flesh, it's our world, we use other people's justifications, and our culture uh, follows the same predictable path over and over. It doesn't have to. There's no reason to expect that the culture in you know, America should just naturally. It, there's not natural forces that are causing it to drift more wickedly. It doesn't have to be that way, but it is. It is, and we'll get to that at, at the end of the message. So, like in the days of Elijah, though God knew knew who His faithful ones were, and so God decided to put on a little theater for the people of Judah. Uh, he called in a family that had recently taken up residence in Jerusalem. It was a family that had lived uh, in the north of okay, so somewhere distant between Jerusalem and the land of the Midianites, somewhere in there, since they were uh, originally of the Midianites, the Canaanites were. And um, they had recently moved into Jerusalem because they feared the armies that were roving back and forth in the valley, driving back and forth as Nebuchadnezzar's armies headed and attacked Ammon and Edom and Boab, and places like this in the south. And so they decided it's safer to take up residence in Jerusalem. And and certainly these are God's people. And uh, they did, much like the Bible commends Moses, choosing to suffer the affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And they took up residence with the people that they joined themselves to. They lived in the land of Israel, even though they were dispossessed in terms of land. They didn't have orchards. They didn't have fields. Uh, but they had joined themselves with the people of God. So very publicly, this family, the Regabites, were invited into the temple. And little uh, known to them, they were going to be offered wine. Now, um, you know, when police, uh, we have Caleb tell us about this. Um, when police will interview suspects in a, in a crime, very often they'll interview them separately and then they'll compare their stories. And then they'll use that to bounce off of each other. Okay? Um, and if there's inconsistencies in their stories, then they know that somebody's lying. They keep pursuing it. And, uh, you know, they, they say in, in court, if you're, you know, falsa, in solo, falsa, in toto. If, if you're lying about something, you're lying about everything. Is sort of the assumption uh, in, in this. I just sort of wonder if the Reikobites weren't spread across the table, and they're all given different pots, different cups set down, and then they said, okay, drink. And you know, you look down and I'm wondering, is anybody going forward towards the cup? Are any of the younger Rechabites going to reach across the table? But none of them do. All of them sit there, and this is that word, Yanyan, it's uh, got the, the context of fermented fermented wine, uh, which no doubt they got from across the street at the king's palace. Um, and, uh, you know, opened up the, the winery or what do you call that, the cellar, I don't, there's a name for it. But, uh, and, and they poured out all this wine for them into the pots, into the cups, and nobody... Reached for it. To a man, they refused to drink on the grounds, not that oh, God has commanded that we not drink. That wasn't it. Keep in mind that all of the law, all of the Old Testament is not even giving it. Okay? Much of it was. Uh, I don't know how many copies of the book of Psalm there were, where the Bible talks about this. The book of Proverbs, okay, or Solomon, that was before this time. Uh, how many copies of that were available, how well it was known to them. Certainly the Rechabites, who were a bilingual people, they spoke the the language of the Midianites and the language of the Israelites, Um, but they probably didn't have access to the writings of Solomon, at least not at this point, not yet. They may not even know that God commands uh, against the consumption of fermented wine, and yet they refuse to drink. And they refuse to drink on the grounds that um, they have made a a covenant with their father. Their father uh, ordered them generations ago, about 200 years before, uh, their father commanded them not to drink wine. Now I want to take a moment and do a little bit of a history lesson on the Rechabites, who they were and their lineage through history. Uh, There's a Few times that I've heard people take, uh, like the, the scarlet thread. Have you ever heard that? The scarlet thread? How many times it shows up through the Old and New Testament? Uh, you know, Rahab hanging out that scarlet thread out the window and uh, tying the, the thread around uh, Jake, uh, Jacob's uh, foot. Other things like this. Uh, the, the Bible uh, sort of re references the same theme throughout. <clears throat> And it can't be a coincidence, okay? It's one of those hints that even though the the book has many different authors and it's written across thousands of years, it's still, the more you study it, if you are persistent, it starts to rise up in your mind that there's one singular mind behind all of this, okay? There's one author behind the Bible. There's just just too many connecting sinews and threads between the various parts of Scripture. So what does the Bible say about the ringmites of their fathers? Well, first of all, they were of the tribe of the Kenites. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 18, and we'll look at it just a moment. I want you to see the character of these Rechabites. Where did it come from? How did they get to be this way? Um, And and where do they show up again in history? Exodus 18, uh, verse number 17. Remember that Moses was chased out of Egypt. And when uh, Moses fled from Egypt, he went and settled in the land of Midianites. And there he met a woman with other women who were um, shepherdesses, as they would call them. And uh, he married one of them. Uh, She became his wife. He ended up going back to Egypt and bringing God's people out. And eventually, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, joined their family to the Israelite caravan during the wilderness wandering. And so during the conquest of Canaan, they come in and Eventually Joshua divides up the land and gives all the portions out according to the command of God. But because the Ken- Kenites are not of the twelve tribes, they are not a portion, a piece of land, in all the land of Canaan. And so they decide, they agree to uh, stay joined to the nation of Israel, even as they're a dispossessed people. Okay? So very much like Moses, following in Moses' character, to be joined with the people of God, even though it means a, uh, a more difficult existence. Exodus chapter 18, verse 17, the Bible says, And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people, to God's word, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. Talking about uh, Moses being a judge to the people. And and thou shalt teach them ordinances law, and laws, and shalt show them the way in where they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, and rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every mat- small matter they shall judge. And so it shall be easier for thyself and they that bear the burden with thee. And so here we see that the, the Kenite, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, who is one of the, if you keep going uh, above the family of Jacob, you eventually get to Jethro, who is the father of the families that, of the Kenites that joined themselves unto Israel. And from the very first entrance into the nation of Israel, they show wisdom and prudence. And the system of courts that we have today is fashioned after this recommendation by Jethro so many generations ago. Our founders actually quoted this passage in talking about uh, the notion of judicial review and having lower courts and higher courts and courts of appeals and setting up the rules and talking about how bribery, a man who is not given to uh, you know, falsehood or not given to taking bribes, it's important to have that quality in a judge. And so um, the the prudence of Jethro and of these people is still affecting us here in the United States today. Our system of government is is, uh, partly fashioned by what we find here in Exodus chapter 18. Now, uh, the second place I want to turn is 1 Chronicles chapter 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 2, if you want to turn there for a moment. We'll see a second person that they're associated with. (coughs) 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse number 50. It says this: these were the sons of Caleb, the son of Hur, the firstborn of Ephraim, Shobol the father of Kurdithiram, Selma the father of Bethlehem, Hereth the father of Beth Gader, and Shobul, the father of Kurdithiram, had sons. Heroeth and half of the Mehanahites. And the families of the Kyrgy- the Ithrites, and the uh, Puhites, and the Shumathites, and the Mishrathites, and them that came of the Zerathites, and the Eshtolites, the sons of Selma, Bethlehem, and the uh, Netophathites, and the house of Joab, and half of the Manathites, and Zorites. None of that really matters. Let's get the point that does. And the family of the scribes which dwell at Jabez, the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukhothites, these are the Kenites that came of Hamath, the father of the house of Raqib. And so we see here that the uh, house of Raqib joined themselves unto Caleb. So Caleb uh, ended up uh, living and serving in the south. Uh, of course, he famously said, I want that mountain. You know, that's the song that we sing, I want that mountain, it belongs to me. Uh, I don't know if that was his exact quote, but he basically said, hey, there's giants in this land, let me add them. And as an old man, he said, you know, even as I was as a young man, so is my strength today, both to go to war and to fight, and to fight God's battles. And so he charged in among these giants and fought them and was victorious. He was zealous. And it's not a coincidence that the family of Rechah joined themselves under the family of Caleb. And the, the, the kind of associations that they had. Now the next place I want you to turn is 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings chapter 10. We see these Rechabites show up again. In verse number 15. The Bible says, And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said unto him, is thine heart right, as mine heart is right with thy heart? And Jonadab answered, It is. If it be, give me thine hand. And he gave him his hand. And he took him up into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal of the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria. till He had destroyed him according to the saying of the Lord which he spake to Elijah. So we see that Jehu, uh, he was a a general king, went on a tour all the land of Israel to destroy the priests and the servants of Baal at the word of the Lord. God had commanded this specifically, okay? And so uh, the Bible says that along the way, he he met these uh, Rechabites. Now, interestingly, he had just met another group And he had hailed them, and he said, where are you guys headed? And they said, oh, we're headed to the house of Ahab to go see the sons of Ahab. They took all 40 of them down to the brook and slew them all, okay? So Jehu was sparing no one that was associated uh, with the veil worship. But when he came across the Rechabites, he uh, interviewed him, he tested him, and Rechab was righteous before the Lord. And he said, you're the kind of guy I want, come ride with me in the chariot. Now, interestingly, the name Rechab, even though you see passages that say the son of Rechab, it, um, most of the commentators believe that Rechab was not actually the name of a man. It was actually the name of a place, and the name of the place was given. So when they say the a son of Rechab or the sons of Rechab, they're talking about the sons from that area. And the Rechab, if you use the word alone, it basically means uh, it means to dominate or control. But if you use the term alone, you're talking about a chariot driver. Uh, that's how the term was used back in that day in that culture, and so it's likely that this uh, that this Rechabite joined himself unto uh, Jehu in his chariot, and they rode through Samaria as they uh, tracked down and destroyed the temple. And the Bible says that uh, that they turned the temple, this great big massive temple in Samaria and, and, uh, near Jezreel, they turned it into a drop house. If you know what that is. Uh, a, a great big outhouse, a bathroom, a public bathroom, that's what it became. Uh, so there's a little bit of a sense of humor in that. And uh, they turned the, the house of Baal into an outhouse. So again, we see the house of Rehab uh, showing up in a, in a zealous way. Anywhere that the zeal of the Lord was involved, the Rechabites managed to find their way onto the right side. Now, turn now to Nehemiah chapter 3. We'll just look at, uh, I think just one verse there. Nehemiah chapter 3, and verse uh, uh, 14, and we'll see one more place that these uh, Rechabites show up. In Ezra, they're rebuilding the temple. In Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the wall. And so we just come into the middle of a long uh, chronicle of the various families that participated in the repairing of the wall, and filling in the gaps and setting up the bars thereof, the doors thereof, the gate thereof, and so on. And here in Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says this. But the dumb gate prepared Malchiah, the son of Rachid, the ruler of part of Betheserim. He built it and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. So you remember that in the story of, of Nehemiah, that there were, um, there were villagers nearby that opposed the work. There were also those people of Tekoa who refused to send laborers. These are uh, Jewish families that refused. They're, they're the elite. You know, They got their vacation homes in Tekoa, and they're just a, a stone's throw away from the building of the wall. They can probably just, if they walk to the top of the hill, they can actually see the wall of Jerusalem. And yet they refuse to participate. Being Jewish, they refuse to give any money. They refuse to give any workers. They refuse to waste their time on something they see that is, they're just trying to be an insurrectionist, is what they, they say. They're just going to uh, lift up their hand against Babylon. And it's going to all be destroyed all over again, they say. And they don't listen to the voice of the Lord. But we see that, again, these Rechabites find themselves into the middle. It's interesting, so often, as Pastor was talking about the Judges, the number of times that other nations' people were used to chastise the Israelites to shame them. And that's one of the things that's happening here, is God is using this non-Israelite, non-tribal family to shame the Israelites into um, in, into obedience, into seeing themselves, into contrasting themselves, and so uh, you can't turn the Bible to see this, but Eusebius, which is a histor- historian um, from the second century, uh, he wrote about how there was a uh, one of the Rechabites, as recorded by Hegesippus, the chronicler in the second century, tells that when James, the brother of Jesus, was being stoned to death, that one of the Rechabites, uh, who is identified as one of the priestly family when Jeremiah testified, objected and told the attackers to stop. So this Rechabite stepped forward and in the face of the mob tried to get them to stop and not stone to death, James, the brother of Jesus. And so we'll see how that that, kind of curtails into the end of the story here on the promise that God gave because God said that because of their obedience, there will never fail a man to stand before me to serve me forever. So we can conclude from that. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they are. I know one of the uh, early archaeologists claimed to have found a family that claimed to be the descendants of the Rechabites uh, south of the Dead Sea. Okay, We're, we're actually like in, uh, ancient of the Gomorrah in that rough neighborhood uh, that there's a tribe, and I don't know if they are or not. Uh, they would appear to be Bedouin. Uh, if you were to see them by appearance, because still today they don't uh, build houses and they don't build and they don't um, plow vineyards and so on. So per God's promise, um, these Rechabites were serving God even in the days of James, the brother of Jesus. Now I have five applications from this passage. The first is this: um, the Bible tells us that the exile of the Uh, tribe of Judah to uh, Babylon was because of their idolatry, because of their shedding of innocent blood. Those were the primary two reasons. And there were other reasons given. But the duration of the exile was because of the number of Sabbath years that they had skipped. And it appears that God held Israel accountable, Judah accountable, from the time of the anointing of King Saul until the Babylonian exile, which by uh, James Fawcett Brown's calculation, is exactly 490 years. Um, now we have to ask, well, what on earth is a Sabbath year? Well, if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 25, it's never too early in the morning to turn to Leviticus. Leviticus uh, chapter 25, and we'll look at verse number one. <laughs> Down to verse 7. The Bible says, and the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say to them, When ye come to the land which I shall give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years shalt thou sow thy field, and six years shalt thou prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land. A Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of its own accord, of thy harvest, thou shalt not reap; neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And the sabbath of the land shall be meat to you, for you, for thee and for thy servants, and for thy maid and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger, so that that sojourneth with thee. And for the cattle and for the beasts that are in the land, shall all the increase thereof be meat. In Exodus chapter twenty-three, verse ten 11 eleven, I'll just read here. The Bible says. And six years thou shalt sow thy land and gather in the fruits thereof, but the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner, when thou shalt, uh, I'm sorry. In like manner, thou shalt deal with the vineyard and with thine olive yard. Now, so if you read uh, with me in Leviticus 25, it almost seems like there's a contradiction because on the one hand it says don't harvest any of that stuff that grows wild during that Sabbath year. And then later on it says, it shall be meat to you. The point is that they're not to go out and gather it into storehouses. They're not to go bundle up all the grapes and go store them up for the winter and that sort of thing, okay? Uh, The Bible um, uh, allowed them to eat the food as a stranger would. If they pass through the field, if they're hungry, if they see a bundle of grapes or if they see a ear of corn or wheat, they can take and eat enough for a meal, but they're not to gather it in a harvest, the second aspect of the uh, Sabbath year was in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 8 and 9. And um, I'll just give you a summary of it and then I'll read that passage. The second portion of the Sabbath year was that any person that by bankruptcy had fallen into slavery of their Jewish brethren were to be released every seventh year. So God required that if a person was in debt, they could be sold into bondage, okay? And we, I know we're all super high sensitive about that. The Bible never commands uh, or advocates slavery. In, in All of the Bible never advocates it. Okay? But it does regulate it. Okay? It does give rights to those who were enslaved sort of recognizing that it was something that was going on everywhere in the world not just in Israel. But every seventh year, the Jews were not to keep their brethren in chains. It is one of the offenses that uh, the Bible says that Jeremiah preached against and one of the reasons that the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, read with me in Jeremiah chapter 34, if you'll turn back near our text there, just the chapter before it. It's one of, the, one of the ways that we know that this is contextual. It's part of the Rechabite's discussion here. Jeremiah chapter 34, four, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says, This is the word that came into Jeremiah from the Lord, after that King Hezekiah had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them. That every man should let his manservant and every man his maidservant, being an Hebrew or a Hebrewist, go free; that none should serve himself or them. To wit, of a Jew his brother. So they were um, committed. They actually realized. Okay, so Jeremiah, we see now uh, through our you know our, our looking glass, whatever here, we see Babylon actually on the horizon. That big dust pile up there. The Rabbis have come into, into Jerusalem. They're saying. The armies of the Babylon are, are in our own plains. They're already inside the land and they're heading to the gates of Jerusalem. And so the king, Jehoiakim, decides, oh no, we need to, we need to reform our ways. And so he commands, and, I'm sorry, Zedekiah, Zedekiah commands all the people to uh, release their Jewish slaves. They're going to declare right now, right now today is the, uh, the uh, Sabbath year. We're going to keep the commandment of the Lord. And the Bible says, down to the chapter, if you continue to read it in chapter 34, that after they'd released all of them, all their servants, things got a little hard. And then they started to backslide. And a couple of them went and gathered their servants back to them and put them back under bondage. And before long, the whole country, in just a, what it seems like a few short weeks, backslid away from the covenant they'd made and had retaken all the people that owed them money back into servitude. And so they backslid on this point. And um, you know, so if you look at, at, at these aspects of this year of the jubilee, I'm sorry, the, the year of the Sabbath, these are fairly difficult terms that God has put on Israel. But the reason for it is that God had declared a radical program of dependence upon him. Israel was not going to be like the other nations of the world. Those other nations, they could sow every single year, they could reap every single year, they could take servants and slaves. They could set up their caste system however they wanted. They could be feudal lords in their land. as so many uh, uh, lords of the realm set themselves up and eventually became kings. And when we think of a king, we think of like the king of England, right? But in, in Israel, there were like kings around every corner. You know, if you had one little city, you could call yourself a king. I think mean, if you had like five or six servants, boom, you're the king. Everybody wanted to be a king. And so, um, you know, the but the... The Bible says that uh, Israel had transgressed in all of this. One of the commentators said that in all of the history of Israel, there's never a recorded time where they ever observed the Sabbath year of the Lord. That of the covenant that was given, there's never a recorded time where they ever observed this. Um, In the modern Israel today, there are certain uh, groups of of the rabbis that have decided to go ahead and observe the Sabbath year parts of it. Now, they don't have slavery, so they don't have to let their servants go or anything like that. They don't lay up their employees. But they don't sow or reap their fields in certain cases. Okay? Um, That is not necessary. That's not required today. That part of the law is done away with. It's not on them or us. Okay? But but they have decided to observe it in the modern day in certain cases. But never in ancient Israel did they ever observe this. Now, if you read through um, the requirements of this, you say, okay, well, they sow, they reap, they sow, they reap, they sow, they reap. I planted this out on an Excel spreadsheet to make sure I understood it uh, to see how many harvests there would be. And uh, <clears throat> there's two harvests missing, you know. Every seven years, there's two harvests missing uh, because they don't sow, they don't reap, and then they don't reap uh, <clears throat> again because they didn't sow. And so you end up with uh, two missing years. But the Bible actually says that in the sixth year, God would cause a triple harvest every sixth year. Now imagine what kind of a testimony that would be to your children. The visual aid. The average 20-year-old would have seen three miraculous triple harvests. Imagine that what, what that would have done for the faithfulness of the people if they had just observed that Sabbath, that Sabbath year. But because they didn't trust the Lord, they never saw that blessing. Their hearts were not given that additional, you know, the Bible says that uh, the, the Jews always sought for a sign, right? God offered them one, and they turned it down. Why? Because it required a little bit of trust. What's also interesting is that God didn't even require them to trust first. God gave them the triple harvest at first. And they sold it off and turned it into money, and did other things with the money. They lived high in the hog. They had, you know, we know that there's a theme throughout the Bible that one of the things that God doesn't like is one, cities, and two, abundance of bread. And they took, instead of uh, uh, storing it up and eating from the old stock in the uh, eighth and ninth year, the way the Bible says. They instead uh, had an abun- abundance of bread. Uh, they became fat. Um, they lived high in the hog instead of observing the Sabbath as God has commanded. Uh, in uh, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 20, we have the record of this. The Bible says, And if ye shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And ye shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year. Until her fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. And so we see that God was able to meet their needs. God didn't require uh, them to meet their own needs. You know, it's interesting that there's a, there's a theme of waste in sacrifice. When, uh, For instance, when the uh, soldiers of David break through the lines and they go uh, get a cup from the water because David has said, oh, if well, only I can drink from this one bro. And they fight their way through enemy lines all night. They come back, they give him the cup, and he won't drink it. He pours it out of the Lord. He sacrifices it. I don't know what you would think, you know, if you're one of the mighty men, it's like, Ain't doing that again. Um, Or or do you feel honored by it? I don't know. It'd be difficult to, to doesn't give us enough of the details of the story there. But there's a certain waste in it. But the point is, we're not supposed to be environmentalists. We're not supposed to be uh, people that are thinking, oh no, it's our job to save the planet. No, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God sends rain upon the just and the unjust. My parents, ironically, are out in Virginia, if they're watching this. They're out in Virginia and uh, they're getting very little rain, like literally a drought. They haven't had rain in a couple of a couple of months where they're at. And I'm like, oh, really? Hey, welcome to Utah. You know, everything's green here. You know, I'm I'm like I we we're, were like 25 days or something like that for them turning off the water, uh, the fine new water. And I've got like 43 percent more of my water left. I can I can like water my neighbor's lawns, everything like that. I can water the streets, you know, and uh, like you're not supposed to do. Um, but the point is that God takes care of us. God isn't limited in resources. Um, you know, God, nothing's limited to God. God doesn't have to, uh, you know, have us save up because you know there may not be enough next year. There's no limit to what God can provide. And so God uh, commands Israel to obey this this covenant and to observe the uh, seventh year as a year of rest for the land. And if they'll do it, God will give a triple harvest to the people. Now, so what is the example here? Uh, Israel looks at these Rechabites sitting there that won't, won't drink of the wine, and they're keeping this covenant to Jonadab, which includes not planting of vineyards and not planting of fields. And the example is this. We Israelites thought that not planting one year would kill us. And you guys never plant. Every year is a Sabbath to you. And it's not a coincidence the story is put right in the heels of chapter 34. And uh, so the logical question after verse number 10 in this passage is, <clears throat> okay, you Rechabites, how are you still here? You know, the Jews are barely getting along. They, they feel like they have to indulge themselves no triple on the triple year. And, and then they they, they they go ahead and harvest and they plant the seventh year like they're not supposed to do. How are you Rechabites surviving until this day? Well, the answer is that God didn't start blessing in Jeremiah 35. He started blessing as soon as that they honored and trusted the Lord. God had been blessing them all along. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, and that it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth. What does it mean, this, this is the first commandment with promise? It means that if you read the law in Exodus chapter 20, if you read down through the Ten Commandments, There's commandments about God, of course. Love the Lord thy God, God is one. There's commandments about uh, other things. And then it comes to the commandment about um, obeying, okay? And the Bible says, honor thy father and thy mother, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. All the way back in the law of Moses, God has set it up that if you honor your mother and father, the land will yield forth its abundance to you. You will live long in the land. In other words, in a sense, this obedience to parents, this honoring of their parents' traditions and their parents' rules, and continuing to honor their parents in, in successive generations, in, a, in some way, rolls back the curse of the Garden of Eden. When God told men that you will go and you will go by the sweat of your brow, you will uh, bring, the earth will yield forth its fruit. But, if we obey the Lord, God, Lord God's command to obey our parents and if we honor them, then partly that curse is rolled back. And so these Rechabites were blessed because they honored this. Long before Ephesians 6 was given, Exodus 20 commanded them, and they had access to this. They knew about it. I don't think they were there when it was given, but they were there. They joined shortly after Sinai. And they knew that if they honored the Lord, that God would take care of them, and so they did so the, it's possible, then, that the Rechabites were exemplified for the opposite reasons that the Jews are condemned to the captivity, and that is that they observe a perpetual Sabbath. What God commands of us, he also gives us. He never dem- demands something that we can't provide. And when God ordered the Sabbath year, he would have provided if Israel had just been faithful to obey. Haggai chapter 1, and verse 6, the Bible says, "He have so much and bring in little." You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. He that earth wages, earth wages to put in a bag, with holes. And the answer, if you ask, well, why was that? And the answer is because the Lord's house lies in waste. So welcome to the Christian family. If you're a new convert, if you've been saved for a short while, welcome to the Christian family. Understand that God is going to command things of you and you're not going to feel like you can do them. But if you do them, God will bless you. God will give you the resources to obey, and you'll still have enough when it's left over. God will supply. If you try God, you'll find him to be faithful. You'll find he's, he never fails the people that trust in him. He never fails those who trust in him. Right. Now, we're not to go out and you know, tilt at windmills and make up promises that not, God did not make. Okay? And say, oh, I want to keep this thing. I want this great thing. I want to be a millionaire by three years from now. And I'm going to claim the promises, okay? We're not going to make up things and put words in God's mouth. But if we obey God and we trust him and if we do what he uh, lays on our heart to do and what he commands in his word to do, then we'll find that we have enough even after we give what he commands. Now, the next application I want to uh, give here is the significance of today. Now, for a second here, as soon as I say that, I sound like I'm all heiress to myself. I'm not talking about the significance of the passage of time, okay? For those of you who have seen that quote where she says over and over and over again, I'm not talking about that, okay? But there are those who think, and this is, common, this is a common refrain among Christians today, including in independent in fundamental Baptist churches, that God doesn't work in our day as he has in past generations. Have you been tempted to think this? I have. I feel that way sometimes. But we have to be careful because there's a, there's a vice built into this. Um, in the same day that, Israel's, uh, that, that Israel was feeling disconnected and distant from their God, Israel's enemies were feeling like it was the heyday. In Laban, Lamentations chapter 2, and verse 16, talking about these events, the Bible says, All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, We have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we looked for. We have found. We have seen it. They're celebrating the destruction of, uh, in, of uh, uh, Jerusalem. They think it's a heyday. To them, their God is working. We better be careful that we're not uh, less hopeful than the world that feels like they're finally coming into their own, like their, their, their wickedness has finally found its voice, like they have kind of finally gone mainstream. They're out of the closet, and now they're shoving you in. We've got to be careful that we don't start to cede control. Remember, one of the reasons that Israel was uh, punished is because they resigned to the fate of their nation. I guess it's just going to be a wicked nation. What can I say? We're just going to have multiple gods. We're going to be polytheistic now. You know, my God is Jehovah, but you know, you bail, okay, no problem. And they resigned themselves to it. You know, Elisha quipped, where is the Lord God of Elijah? What is he saying? He's saying he wants to bring the significance of Elijah's day into my day. He wanted to see God work today. And it's right for us to want to see God working in our day today. Not just suffice ourselves that, oh, we know the name Lester Roloff. We know the name of these other big-name preachers of past generations that did mighty things. That stood down and stared down the law and the state when they tried to shut him down. Did all these mighty works and God worked in their day. And so we live in their legacy, you know. We're still in the shadow of the mountain. And so we're kind of covered. We're okay. We remember them. Therefore, you know, God has sort of worked in our time. No, no. God wants us to anticipate His working in our lives today. And if we think that He has sort of left off, He, he no longer walks the earth in our day. That's not the truth of it. The truth of it is that we have forgotten Him. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we have to be careful. Psalm one eighteen twenty four says this: "This is the day which the Lord hath made." We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now let's put this in context. That was talking about that day. No. This is a timeless truth. You can sing this any day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. There's also those in scripture the Bible describes as those that forgot the Lord. There are many references that we can look at. But just a couple. Psalm, I'm sorry, Job 8.13. The Bible says, So are the paths of all that forget God. And the hypocrite's hope shall perish. You feel your hope kind of sifting away. You wonder what kind of church or environment that your children will grow up in. I'm not saying that I see a lot of hope in the world. I don't. And, and I'm tempted. My, I'm, I'm just as fleshly as you are. I can get discouraged by the things I see in the news headlines and so on. But we've got to encourage ourselves in the Lord. That's one of the things that's unique about the Psalms is that it's constantly calling you to hope in God from whence cometh your help. Maybe not, you know, David wants some really harsh times. And when he was fleeing from Saul, those times lasted uncomfortably a long amount of time. And the hardships were many. And the kind of people that gathered themselves to David were not the kind that you would normally draw out as your invitation list, okay? If you're the, uh, the, the mayor. Um, these are a bunch of uh, uh, you know, despised people. The deplorables, you might say. Mm-hmm. Psalm chapter 50 and verse 22, the Bible says, Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation right will I show the salvation of the Lord. In other words, on any day that you do what Psalms tells us, and that you rejoice in the day that God has made, and you lift up the voice of God, and you praise Him, and you order your conversation, which is not just talking about your words, it's talking about your life, your interactions with everyone and everything. If you order your conversation right, then guess what? The Lord is working in your day. You can be assured of that. Now, there's other ways we can go about demonstrating this, but let's just suffice it with that. If we praise and obey God in any one day, then there's no reason to think that God's hand is removed, that our days are not written in his book. It's interesting that Jehoiakim and Zedekiah both talk as though they're distant from God, that God can't help, that God can't deliver. Even the, the quick impulse under the preaching of Jeremiah to go and let's quickly observe the Sabbath year they backslide on almost instantly. Okay? It's interesting um, the way that um, they fall back quickly into perdition because they don't see, they, don't, they feel distant from God. Do you feel like you live mostly a secular life, that God doesn't interact much with you today? Don't believe it. Your day is being written in his book. The story of Zedekiah is recorded in the book of Jeremiah for us. It's like he says, uh, you know, God doesn't care about us. God has forsaken us. And meanwhile, there's an angel in heaven writing down everything that's happening in Zedekiah's life. And and everything that's happening in Jehoiakim's life. God has prophesied these things to uh, Josiah before them. All these things are divine. And when we start to think that, no, 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 the world's in control. No, Satan is on the march. No no doubt the Antichrist is right around the corner. Because just look at it. We have to remember... No, for earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is the day that the Lord has made. You will rejoice and be glad in it. In dark times, don't believe that God has forsaken you. Hope in God. His help will come and in his perfect time. James chapter 1 and verse uh, 6 answers the sin of Zedekiah to falter in his obedience to the command to let the Jewish servants and slaves go. James 1 says this, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven from the wind and paused. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now we can look at different places, like um, the dipping of Naaman in the the, uh, Jordan River and things like this. Partial obedience never gets God's blessing. There's not a half uh, bonus for half obedience. We have to obey all the way. And let's remember that. Again, if, if you're following the world's um, kind of philosophy, you think, well, 25% effort should give me 25% reward. 50% effort should give me 50% reward. God doesn't work like that. That is in faith. Not according to God. Yes. Yes. You have to follow through with obedience. You have to do it all the way. You have to not draw back into perdition. You know, it's one of the discouraging things we see, when we <clears throat> see in the converts. And they go along for a while, and, and, and they get you know, excited about the blessings of the Christian life. They, 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 they like the, the release from the guilt that they feel, yeah. and then it gets hard. Uh-huh. And then they draw back again into perdition. Yeah. God doesn't bless that. We have to follow through. We have to obey all the way. Mm-hmm. And that's when we'll see the deliverance of the Lord. You know, if Zedekiah had followed through that year of Jubilee, uh, there is no question that God would have answered his faith. There's no question about it. Jeremiah had promised it, and promised it, and promised it, and promised it, and promised it. And Zedekiah started, and then fell back into perdition. The next application I want to make is, the zeal of the Rechabites wasn't passed down 200 years at a time. The zeal of the Rehobites was passed down one generation at a time. In Jeremiah chapter 35 and verse 6, the Bible says this, but they say, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. And there it goes. Those, no doubt they carved it on a stone, and so everyone who came along read it on that stone. No, no, no. This generation, nobody from this generation in Jeremiah's day had met their father, Jonadab. He's called Jehonadab in uh, Second Chronicles. Nobody had met him. This is not the Jonadab, by the way, the very subtle man, okay, if you've read that passage. Uh, It's not the same person. Um, But it had been 200 years since that command had been given. They were honoring their history and traditions they obeyed because each successive generation of fathers compelled their children to do the same. And so God promised them a future, that a man would never fail to stand before God in service. Now, in our culture today, it's becoming a discreet and unbiblical virtue. You'll be praised and applauded for it. To give your children carte blanche, to do whatever they want to do, Mm -hmm. to follow their dreams, okay? The word that we use now is affirm them, okay? Now, there are certain things, when you start to discover the gifts that God is giving your children, certainly you should encourage that, okay? Like like an ember, you should blow on it, you should provide it what it needs to grow and to foster, because God has planted that there, and he's going to look for a reward for his uh, giving that talent, that gift to that child, But we should not think excuse me